Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Daniel Akbari, author of the book Honor Killing, A Professional's Guide to Sexual Relations and Gaira Violence from the Islamic Sources. Mr. Akbari was born and raised in Iran, where he studied law at Tehran University Law School in Qom, Iran. After graduation, he became a lawyer and a member of the Iranian Bar Association. Daniel, a top Sharia lawyer, handled many cases before the Iranian Supreme Court. He then immigrated to the United States and pursued his education in criminology. It also bears noting that Daniel is a Muslim apostate. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thank you, sir. First question is, your book talks about Islamic law and in particular, Gaira violence. But at an even higher level, you talk about the fundamental tenets of Islam. How does Islam and Sharia law in particular, which governs all of one's actions under Islam, differ fundamentally from Judaism and Christianity? Yes, um, the the first uh, difference is that everything comes from Quran and Sunnah or Hadith, which are totally different from, uh, if if we look at it from the moral sense, Sometimes killing is justified in Islam. As I know in Christianity, it's not allowed to do so. Sometimes adultery is allowed in different situations. Sometimes um, lying is allowed. So Islam actually doesn't have any rule in general because every rule can be bent if that serves Allah, if that serves to promote the religion of Islam. So every rule in Islam can be bent. Sometimes you can lie if that furthers Islam's agenda. Sometimes you can kill if that furthers Islam's agenda. So the base of morality is shaky. And at the same time, the the base of morality is totally different from Christianity. Is Islam a religion of peace? And would you say that ISIS members are pious Muslims? Uh, You know, the religion of peace, people who say such a thing are totally unaware of Islam. For me, for example, I have studied Islam for about three decades. If we read the Quran, if we understand it, if we read the Hadith, if we understand it, if we, for example, study Islamic jurisprudence and the science, how to put everything together and understand the the whole body of Islamic teaching for 14 centuries, we come to realize that this is a flat lie that if we say Islam is the religion of peace, people who say such a thing are either ignorant or liars. <clears throat> but the thing is, ISIS, for example, if we look at what ISIS have has done so far, if we look at the actions like crucifixion, beheading infidels, stoning uh, adulterers or whatever, if we just look at the actions, all those things are facts of Islam and Sharia. They are not making up something. Even about burning, but that's what Muhammad did and about uh, against against a Jew. If we go to see that on Nabi or the life of Muhammad book written by Ibn Hisham or Ibn Ishaq, his father, we see in page 515, it expressly says how Muhammad allowed burning the Jew, you know. So they are not they are not going against Islam, whatever they do, almost everything we say 98% is Islamic and has basis in Islam. Is there such a thing, you know, the the Prime Minister of Turkey, Erdogan, says there's no such thing as, and I'm paraphrasing here, there's no such thing as 
Islamism or moderate Islam, Islam is Islam and that's it. In your view, is there such a thing as moderate, quote-unquote, Islam in the sense of a personally practiced version of religion that is compatible with Western society? You know, what uh, What Erdogan, the prime minister of Turkey, says is actually perfect and totally Islamic because Islam is Islam. We don't have such a thing like radical Islam extremism. It's not many things that are said in Islam, like beheading, like stoning, like flogging. They are not extremism acts. Those are pure Islam. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this is not extremism. This is fundamentalism. People who believe in Quran understand it and practice it and take it serious. About moderate Muslims, we have to kind of make a distinction between those people who come from Islamic background, come from Middle East, their names are Muhammad, Khaled, they might not believe in Quran at all, they might just be atheists. They just come from that region. It does not necessarily make them Muslim, but Americans call them Muslim and say they are moderate, they don't have hijab, they go to pool with swimsuit or whatever. They are not moderate Muslims. Moderate Muslims actually are kind of like care people people who are Muslim Brotherhood type, right? And these people fight for Islam, love it, but they they give a peaceful feature and good looking to Islam to make it they make Amer- I mean make American deceive Americans not to resist the process of Islam. Sometimes they deceive Americans this way that we are the same as your neighbor who is from Middle East. That neighbor might be an atheist, might be a Buddhist in heart just by name and feature might be a kind of, people might assume it Islamic. For example, somebody ran into me and said, where are you from? I said, Iran. He asked me, what's your name? I said, Daniel. He said, that's a strange name for a Muslim. Without understanding that I'm a Christian, he just jumped into conclusion and assumed that I'm a Muslim. So this is a misunderstanding that they might say, whoever comes from Middle East is a Muslim. But moderate Muslims, as we might know, as Muslim Brotherhood, they are the backbone of jihad. Without them, there is not going to be any jihadi. They support jihad. They financially, they recruit here for, for jihadis. They recruit in this country. They have their own Islamic centers. They go to jail and recruit for, for ISIS. So without these moderate Muslims, I'm not talking about just people come from, coming from Middle East. I'm talking about those who fight for Islam or those who love Islam and pay for jihadists and also support to recruit, I mean, to try to recruit people or sympathizers. My point about moderate is kind of different than what Americans might say. Moderates are not anybody from Middle East with an, with an Islamic name. My point about moderate are people who have Islamic organization in, in, in an organized way fight to improve Islam. I call those people moderate. To my eyes, those moderates are no different than ISIS or jihadists. Two questions related to that, and then ultimately we'll shift towards gyra violence in particular, the subject of your book. First question is, what is the ultimate goal of Islam for all Muslims? And the second is, tell us about how deception is actually compelled under Islamic law, and in particular the concepts of taqiyya, kitman, and tariya. Yeah, in Surah 2 or Al-Baqarah, 
ayah 193 or verse 193, we have the goal of Islam, that you have to fight until there is no fitna in the whole world. Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the spiritual leader for Muslim Brotherhood, and also the most well-known Muslim scholar, just says that fitna is kuf, is any non-Islamic belief, and that's not what he only says. Ibn Tamir also says, many, many scholars, Ibn Kathir, the, and, and, and another great scholar, they all translate fitna as non-Islamic belief. So the verse expressly says the goal of Islam is to wipe off any non-Islamic belief and establish Islam and make Islam the only legitimate religion in the whole world. That's the goal of Islam, and it is obvious before everybody. I mean, aside from those people who lie and make takiyah, takiyah comes from Surah 3, Ayah 28. The, the, the term that the Quran uses is tohat, but the, 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 the fact is the Quran says you should not take non-Muslims as your friends. The only purpose, if you are going to do so, your purpose should be to deceive them and further Islam. So if this is one point of it. The other point could be Ketman. Ketman means hiding. If you are a Muslim and you think if you say that, it's going to hurt the process of improving Islam, you can hide, hide it. What about Tariya? It's about twisting, about hiding, about telling half of the truth. Any way that you can deceive non-Muslim to further Islam's agenda is allowed in Islam, all based on Surah 3, Ayah 28. Now, as you call them in the book, Muslim spokespeople in the West will cite verses that make it seem as if Islam is a peaceful religion. It, it looks to coexist with Jews and Christians and atheists and, and others. Now, you write in the book about the fact that the Quran follows Muhammad from Mecca to Medina, and there's a concept of right. abrogation. And that sort of parallels what happens where you see Muslims where they're minorities in Western countries and the way they act. Flesh that out for us a little bit. Right. The point is, when Muhammad was in Mecca, he didn't have any power. He tried to, first of all, accept, I mean, get the acceptance of Jews that he is the one they are waiting for. So he tried to, uh, imp I mean, smooth the way and find his path in a peaceful way because he didn't have any power. The time that two groups or two big tribes from Medina came to him and pledged the legion that we accept you, come to our city and become our commander, that's called the second Aqaba or the second Aqaba. It was a, a, a kind of allegiance, the second allegiance that those two tribes came to Muhammad and Muhammad was sure that from now on he has support. He started jihad. And the last surah of the Quran that came to Muhammad, surah 9, it, it has abrogated. It, they call him Nasikh al-Mansukh, or abrogation, that the second order kind of um, supersede the first order. Like, for example, I say, go and shut the door. The person is walking toward the door. I tell him, hey, don't stop. Don't go to do that. The second order abrogates the first. So the last surah, which is Toba, it's about go find them and kill them. Anywhere you find them, kill them. That verse starts without 
in the name of Allah, the compassion, the most compassionate, the most merciful. In that verse, Muhammad, Allah told Muhammad, from now on, you, you, you should just uh, forget about whatever I said about treating them, children, wherever you find them. And in Surah 929, we see how Allah orders Muhammad, go fight against Jews and Christians and kill them until they pay jizya, they pay tribute on their hands in a humiliated way. So we see how moving from Mecca to Medina and getting power, Muhammad started raiding caravans, killing, and totally forgetting about whatever he said in Mecca. Westerners will make two arguments against what you're saying about Islam. The first is they'll say, well, there are different interpretations of Islam. Some are more peaceful than others. And the second argument that they'll make is that there are, call it 1.6 plus billion Muslims in the world, and there are millions of peaceful Muslims. How do you respond to those comments? Yeah, to the first question, we have to go through who is the authority that talks about Islam. Somebody has to have qualifications. For 14 centuries, the translation and interpreting the Quran was the exact same thing that we are saying today. In recent years, there are many different interpretations that does not have, that do not have any basis. We have to accept the interpretation that has at least one base. If somebody says, okay, on my, on my own I say there is no Allah, there is no Muhammad, and that's my interpretation. Who cares about that type of interpretation? The interpretation has to be driven out of Quran and Hadith in a specific Islamic process. Islamic legal reasoning, there are many factors that need to be taken into account to have a valid interpretation. That's the difference between a valid interpretation or an invalid interpretation. About the second question, we have to say that 1.6 billion or 1.2, some people say 1.2, the others say 1.6, who knows if they are Muslim or not? They are counting, for example, all the Iranian as as a part of that population. Half of Iranian are atheists. Half of Iranian curse Muhammad and the Quran every moment. So they are not Muslims, but Americans or Westerners count those people as a part of that population. We have the same, the same problem with other countries in Tunisia, Egypt. I mean, uh, in, in many Islamic countries, a part of that community, they don't believe in Islam at all in their hearts. They just try to pretend to be able to live in that country. So here is the point. Those people, yes, they are peaceful. They move here. They are from Pakistan. They are from Iran. They are peaceful. But are they Muslim? Based on at least Islam's own definition of Islam, who is a Muslim based on Islam itself? At least, at least they have to practice the five pillars, shahada, zakat, salat, or, or prayer, and going to hajj, and also fasting. How many of these so-called Muslims do the basic thing, prayer? How many of them pay zakat? They are not Muslim based on Islam's own interpretation. They do not follow Islam. But the problem is here that some people from those Muslim spokesmen or care type people, Muslim Brotherhood type, they try to deceive Americans and say, we all are the same. Your neighbor who does not practice Islam is peaceful as we are. 
without telling them, hey, we have mission for Islam, we practice Islam, that your, your neighbor whom you might call Muslim, he never practices Islam, he is not a Muslim. So now transitioning to Gaira killing, or what we call in the West honor killing, but which you describe in your book is probably the most dishonorable thing you could do by Western standards. You write, and I quote, The students who do not follow Quran and the spokespeople who deny Islam has anything to do with Gaira killing and violence are in the same situation as a Muslim who does not follow the jurisprudence, Sharia, or a recognized legal school, Madab, but invents the details of Islamic practice from his own opinion about Quran and Hadith, unquote. This is actually criminal under Islamic law, is that correct? That's right. About the gear, we have to say people all around the world have different interpretation of honor. Americans, for example, say somebody who is honest is honorable. In different countries, honor means difference. That why, so that's why we came up with Islam's own definition of these type, this motivation, which is gaira or gaira. That gaira is the sense of jealousy that a Muslim man has over his female family members. If they kind of exceed from Islam's limitation for women's dress and conduct, that excites that feeling and they might take action and even kill the female family member. That is totally different than honor in the United States. It's like soccer and football. The whole world calls foot, soccer football. Americans say it different because they are not the same. That's honor that American might say. Say a judge in Arizona said there is no honor in killing your daughter. That's right because that's not honor. That's gayra. That's the sense of jealousy that Muslim man Islam has provided for the Muslim man. Islam says, "Oh Muslim man, you have to have this sense, and you have to ask your female family members to follow." Sharia provisions and Sharia rules for women dress and conduct. If they <clears throat> do not follow those rules, you have to take action against her. So we see how Gaira is kind of different than honor in the United States. You also write about this concept of, in Islam, enjoining good and forbidding evil, which is endemic to the religion. Is Gaira violence considered a good? And talk about how Gera violence itself, first of all, define what Gera violence is. And then second, talk about how it flows from the actions of Muhammad himself. Yes, Gera is when a Muslim man takes, takes a violent action against his female family members when they do not follow the rule, Islamic rules and Sharia rules for women, dress, and conduct. For example... In, based on Sharia, it's, it's forbidden for a woman to shake hand with a man. So if a, a Muslim woman does such a thing, that excites that sense of jealousy that Islam has provided for a man, for a Muslim man. So the Muslim man gets angry and, and attacks, for example, the woman, why did you shake hand? Because that's against Islam. So if we go further about enjoining good and forbidding evil, that's another mechanism that Islam has provided to give and has given a power to each Muslim to watch other Muslims act to see if that, that is uh, this, uh, according to Sharia or not. For example, I'm drinking alcohol. That's against Islam, right? And another person, another Muslim can stop me and even beat me up or kill me 
to stop me from doing something against Sharia. That's a mechanism in joining good and forbidden evil. Gender violence is a part of that. If somebody goes against uh, Sharia rules for women, dress, and conduct, other Muslims can take action to stop him, not to, uh, to, not to break Sharia laws. And Muhammad himself said, Allah has the most sense of gaywa. It means uh, anybody else to be worshipped but himself. It talks about that sense of jealousy. And also Muhammad admired the second Khalif, Omar's gaywa, because he was so harsh against the woman who, I mean, the, the woman who violated Sharia law for dress and conduct. Muhammad himself said woman has to be behind curtain because of that sense of jealousy that didn't want others to kind of um, kind of um, mingle with his family members or have any connection with his wife. So for example, Ayesha, Muhammad's wife's cousin, used to come to visit him. I mean, sorry, visit Ayesha. Muhammad said, from now on, you should not come to visit my wife because only maharam or unmanageable kin uh, can visit one another. And so nobody has the right to come and knock my door and see my wife. That's a part of that sense of jealousy that Islam has provided or Muhammad provided for Muslims to make sure that everybody follows Sharia, especially women follow the, 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 the Islamic rules for dress and conduct. Many in the Obama administration, care spokespeople, among others, talk about jihad as an internal struggle. You write that Allah commands jihad, and the purpose of jihad is, and I'm quoting here, is ultimately religious, to contain, subjugate, and eliminate all other religions throughout the world, so that, and I'm quoting, all and every kind of worship is for Allah alone, unquote. So how do we reconcile what you say with what the Obama administration and others say about jihad? There is no reconciliation between truth and lie. So we have to say jihad has been defined based on the Quran and Islamic sources. For 14 centuries, scholars have expressly said that jihad is killing because the term that the Quran uses is killing. In hundreds of places, say chill. Just some small places say make jihad, and the jihad says those people who kill in the way of Allah. So this fighting against evil temptation and struggling or purifying heart is a made-up thing. By whom? By somebody, by two people, called them Leif and Yahya, two narrators who were notorious for lying. And the person who first recorded such hadith is Bayhari. In his book, Al-Zakht al-Kabir, in that book, he explained that this hadith or narration is weak and untrusted. Ibn Tamir said, Gharibun jiddan. It is so strange and bizarre to accept this definition. And all the other scholars expressly say, this is, this, this is fake, first of all, because it goes, it goes against the exact definition of jihad that, that the Quran offers and also because the chain of narration is weak. People who have narrated such a thing are liars, and also the first source, the person who have narrated this hadith, says this is untrusted and weak. 
So it is obvious why such a big lie and a fake hadith have become that famous. It shows there is a big propaganda is behind this process that people do not know this, uh, the, the obvious meaning of jihad that the Quran offers, but they all know about a fake hadith that nobody accepted. You know, it shows there is a systematic propaganda behind the process. A systematic propaganda which is dictated itself by Islam. Exactly right. Why are jihad and gaira, gaira two sides of the same coin? Yeah, the reason is that both of them are to protect and to spread Islam. First of all, they weigh jihad to spread Islam and purify the earth, kind of killing everybody who is not a Muslim and is considered to be filthy. At the same time, Gera is purifying the Islamic community or the enjoining good and forbidden evil mechanism purifies Islam from any non-Islamic act inside the community. So jihad is for out of the community and enjoining good and forbidden evil a mechanism to purify inside the ummah. These are two, two mechanisms that go hand in hand, one of them to purify the whole world and remove any non-Islamic thing, and enjoining good and forbidden evil is to, is to purify inside the Ummah and remove any non-Islamic act. So both of them kind of serve for the same cause. In your book, I found one example that was particularly interesting and timely in light of the recent countering violent extremism, and I put that in quotes, summit, held by the Obama administration. You write about how before one honor killing in the West, some school administrators who were concerned went to a local imam to discuss the increasing threats that one female student was facing. Now, in that counter, countering violent extremism summit, one of the cures or one of the things that the Obama administration proposed in terms of countering jihadists, even though they wouldn't say that, is to work within Muslim communities, including within mosques, i.e. with imams, to deal with jihadism. What do you say about that? You know, I don't know how to put this Iranian saying and expression into English, but I do my best. It is like if you make a wolf to be a shepherd of the herd and kind of take care of your sheep, it's like, for example, making a cat in charge of a piece of meat. You are giving the poor girl into the hand of those people who are commanding those rules. An, an imam is the one who kind of teach the father, if your daughter do so, punish him this way. If your family try to become westernized, stop him this way, even if you use violence. That's okay. So we see how we are sending, the, we are sending, for example, the poor girl in the in the hands of people who are waiting to to inflict injury or, or try to take violence against them. You know, he, this is so strange and bizarre to make somebody who is the source of the problem in charge of such a process that we are trying, for example, to help to reduce the violence against Muslim women. If we make the person who is the source of problem in charge for that process, that is totally nonsense. 
related to this, you write something that I think most Americans probably would find curious. And so I want to allow you to explain it to our audience. You write that uneducated, ignorant Muslims are perhaps the most susceptible to honor killing, and I would presume a whole host of other activities that we find terrible in the West, as required under Gera. Why is it that these uneducated Muslims, or ones who may not even consider themselves Muslims, are most susceptible to these actions? You know, in our book, we have categorized Muslims into four. For example, first of them are educated Muslim observants, those who take care of the, they, they teach their kids from childhood, they teach them about Islam, they provide everything, they send them to Islamic private school, so they don't have this problem that much. They make their kids to become the heads of Islamic centers, the heads of Islamic propaganda. The second class are, for example, educated just secular Muslims, those people do not care if their kids become atheists or have genes or go out totally naked. They do not care. They also do not have such a problem. The problem is with the, the third, the, the, the fourth class, actually, like people who are secular, nominal, at the same time uneducated because they come from countries like Iran, Iraq, Pakistan. They do not have enough education. When they come to this country, they get low salary jobs. They cannot afford that much to send their kids to specific private schools. They let the community to raise their kids. When they, when they, raise, they, they, when they grow up as a kind of American type of girl, at that time when they are 16 or 17, because the father has Islamic culture and Islamic Sharia in his heart, finds many non-Islamic find his daughter doing many non-Islamic actions that he cannot tolerate. To some extent, when they are kids and they do not have hijab or they do not follow Islam, it's kind of cute. They do not care. When they grow up and they are 16, 17, and all of a sudden, the father who has come from an Islamic background sees his, his daughter hanging out with non-Muslim boys, short, scared, or many, many seductive appearance, that just goes right against his gay rap because anyway he has grown he himself has grown up in a culture with, with with under Sharia or under Islamic rules and still has many of those rules in his heart. You know, all of a sudden he starts stopping the the girl and the girl cannot accept it because she has grown up in a totally different mindset. The father allowed her to be raised in a different way. And when she's grown up, the father cannot tolerate her actions because those are non-Islamic and against his gayra, that sense of jealousy. Related to this is one other abhorrent act that I've seen a number of articles recently, particularly in Great Britain, talking about basically an epidemic of female genital mutilation. Explain how that stems from and naturally flows from Islam in general and Sharia in particular? Right. Some, some Muslims in the West or some Muslim spokesmen try to distinguish between Quran and Hadith, and that's wrong. Quran and Hadith, both of them are sources for Islam. We cannot say this is not from Quran and it is from Hadith, so we can deny it or ignore it. And we have authentic hadith, many authentic hadith that uh, Muhammad said genital mutilation, also they, it, it called it circumcision, both. 
the, the term that uh, Arabic in Arabic they use it is al-khattan. Khattan is the plural for circumcision. It means for both. And we have many other uh, narrations, like from um, Ayesha, that expressly says this circumcision is for both men and women. It's not only for men. If Quran is the only source, why we have all these Muslim males, they all are circumcised. That's all based on the same the same narration and the same hadith that we have for female genital mutilation. So both of them are required. But in some countries, they do not do it again for women and just do it for men. But both of them, based on Islam, are allowed and recommended kind of like public. These are obligatory. But the point is, the purpose for cutting the clitoris is to reduce the pleasure, reduce the... the the desire for sex, so they want to protect man's gaira by by re, by removing the clitoris. There was an article recently about the dramatic increase in Muslim immigrants to the U.S. from I think 2010 to 2013. What does this portend for America? You know, I was I have I have coming from a country which is multiculturalism kind of we have many different cultures in Iran, so I have come to realize that this multiculturalism thing, if they do not get melted in the community, if they do not assimilate into the community in the future, it's going to be so destructive for the United States because the result of different cultures is sufficient. People try to kind of. Um, concentrate and live in a specific state or city and slowly, if because they have different moral values, try to uh, to claim that they want their own country, they want their own state to be ruled by different laws. And this is the problem that we have seen already Europe has gone through and now they are, they are seeing the, the, the negative results of allowing multiculturalism without kind of encouraging the people who, who move here and migrate here to get melted in the community to become American, trying to tell them, hey, you stop becoming American, follow your own religion, follow your own rules, be, be an Iranian, live here, be an Indian, live here. That's going to become problematic in the future because different moral rules and values, as Samuel Hunting, Huntington said in The Clash of Civilization, the, the war of ideas are going to come and that's going to be destructive for this country. You know, it is obvious to me. If you had a megaphone and you could deliver a message to all Americans about Islam, what would that message be? I would say political, organized, not necessary, not only political, but also organized Islam. Those people who teach the Quran and Hadith, or just, just, even just the Quran, those who teach Islam and tell people you have to believe in the whole Quran as a, as a book that applies to 21st century, all verses, those people are dangerous, and that idea is dangerous. If somebody encourages Muslims to believe in the whole Quran, applicable to 21st century. When I say the whole Quran, I mean all verses, including Surah 9, Ayah 5, Surah 9, Ayah 28, Surah 2, 190, 193, that says, go and kill Christians and Jews. If somebody teaches such a thing, 
that is dangerous and must be stopped. To me, an organization, a center that encourages its follower, its followers to believe in the whole Quran, all verses for the 21st century, valid for 21st century, they must be stopped, and they cannot enjoy the First Amendment because First Amendment never accepts those ideas that go against other people's lives. We've talked a lot, theoretically, about Islam, the concepts of jihad, uh, strategic deception, gera. Now, I want to sort of synthesize this through an article that was recently published in the New York Times, and I want to read a couple quick excerpts from it and get your take on it. The name of the title is of the article is Teenage Girl Leaves for ISIS and Others Follow. And here's how the article starts, and I'm quoting. Aksa Mahmoud's family saw her as an intelligent and popular teenager who helped care for her three younger siblings and her grandparents at her home in Scotland. She listened to Coldplay, read Harry Potter novels, and drank Urn Brew, a Scottish soft drink. She aspired to be a pharmacist or a doctor, and they did not expect her to leave her home in Glasgow in November 2013 to go to Syria, where the authorities now say she is one of the most active recruiters of young British women to join the Islamic State, unquote. What do, you, what do you have to say when you read a couple paragraphs like that? Yeah, in my first book, New Jihadists on Islam, I explained how when you teach your kid that Islam is the truth, the Quran is the truth, you have to see the negative result. So if, for example, I am raising my child and I'm telling him, hey, the Quran is an absolute truth, even though sometimes he might go and drink alcohol and become... No, and do many non-Islamic acts, one day he is going to get regretted from those non-Islamic acts because always I told them the Quran is the, 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 the absolute source and the truth. So they come back and hang out with Islamic society more. They read the Quran, and when they understand it, whether they see, for example, ISIS and Al-Qaeda are saying nothing more than what the Quran and Islam says. So they find their own way and forget about whatever they have done or abandon any non-Islamic act that they have done and join to their sources because the father, the family, even though if they are not uh, kind of practicing Muslim, as far as they tell them the Quran is the ultimate truth, if you go to the mosque, it's right. If you go, if you hang out with non-Muslims, it's wrong. The, the result automatically is going to be that the kid get the mindset that this is my family, this is my heritage, this is my religion. And because, as I said, those jihadi groups tell the truth about Islam, and through the process that he, he or she learns more about Islam, understands they are telling the truth about Islam. So based on all this background, they ultimately they go to join the, those groups who fight for Islam. So the article continues talking about the reaction of the families of three girls from London who are missing, who may have been recruited by Aksa Mahmoud to join the Islamic State. And so the article continues, quote, As the families of the three missing girls made tearful appeals for their daughters to return home, Miss Mahmoud's family issued a statement last weekend addressed to their own daughter, whom they called a, quote, disgrace, unquote. They said they were full, quote, or sorry, they said they were, quote, full of horror and anger, unquote, that she, quote, may have had a role to play, unquote, in recruiting the girls for the Islamic State. 
Your actions are a perverted and evil distortion of Islam, the family said in their statement released through their lawyer. Quote, you are killing your family every day with your actions. They are begging you to stop if you ever love them, unquote. How do you respond to that? Those parents, they don't know Islam themselves, but probably they have led the kid or have encouraged the kid to become more Muslim. They couldn't probably anticipate that if you encourage your kid to become a true Muslim, that is going to be the result. At last, they are going to end up to, to that place. Probably they never knew that the, the, the result of the, encouraging their kids to become more Muslim is going uh, to have such a negative impact. But when it comes to the part that they say, oh, that's perverted or twisted, they are going to say something to make the country satisfied, not to deport them, not to give them hard time to be able to live more. So that's just a deception to say this is a perverted version of the Quran and Islam. They might either know, either do not know Islam or just lying. It, it shouldn't be out of these two. I'll, I'll give you one more excerpt because I think it, it pulls out some further insights that are reflected in your book, Honor Killings, and I imagine in your first book as well. So the article states, members of Miss Mahmoud's family said they had, quote, absolutely no inkling, unquote, of her radicalization, according to their lawyer. The oldest of two sisters and a brother, she lived with her parents and grandparents in a middle-class area of Glasgow. None of the women in her family wore a headscarf, Miss, Mr. Anwar, their lawyer, said. But one day, Miss Mahmoud began wearing a hijab and became, quote, increasingly vocal and angry, unquote, about events in Syria. But you can go to any Muslim household, he added, and you would hear similar arguments being made, unquote. That's the lawyer speaking. And then another quote from the lawyer. It is those young people who are liked, who are smart, who think, who are caring, who are ripe for radicalization, unquote, he said, not the outcasts. How do you respond to that? They are ignoring and downplaying the, the connection between going to mosque and studying the Quran and becoming radical. They are trying to kind of disconnect this process. They are trying to say going to mosque and learning Quran is something different than becoming radical. No. They don't become radical overnight. The process that for years and years the father and the mother have, has allowed them to go to mosque, encourage them to become more Muslim, that is the process of so-called radicalization, which is to me fundamentalism. They have allowed to their kids, and also they have encouraged them, go and learn more about your faith. Go become more Muslim. That becoming more Muslim and getting more knowledge is the process of radicalization. Going from one step that you are just a simple Muslim to becoming a devout Muslim, that is radicalization. And that process is based on getting more information and learning more about Islam and learning more about the Quran and Hadith. They try to say becoming radical is just to get connected to, uh, to Al-Qaeda or ISIS. It's not related to learning more about your religion. No, learning more about the religion has a strong connection to radicalization because they learn about it, they become more practicing and more devout Muslims. And people might call it radicalization, but to me is going to become more a true Muslim. Mr. Akbar, you've been very generous with your time. I just have two more quick questions related to Iran. The first is, first is, 
What do Americans need to know about the Iran with whom our president is negotiating today on nuclear weapons? Uh, in Iran, we have two powers. One of them is the supreme leader and the right wing, who probably have, are 30%. And we have 70% who are tired of the regime and try to vote to bring people as president to kind of turn, to turn the Islamic regime away from radicalization. But the problem is here that the power is in the hand of that 30%. For now, for example, we have the president of Iran. He loves to shut the door of those atomic places or nuclear program, but he doesn't have the power. The power is in the hand of the supreme leader because they want to be armed with nuclear power to, to kind of send fear to the heart of infidels and tell them, do not mess with us the result of that is not going to be good. At the same time, for their existence, they need the bomb. They have to tell their own people, if you uprise against us, if you try to become non-Islamic, we destroy the whole country because it's better to be destroyed than become non-Islamic. And what would be your message to President Obama and the American people about negotiating with the Iranian regime? You know, with President Obama, probably he has his mind already set about everything. I don't think if that's going to be helpful. But for people, for Americans, what I say is that the Iranian government wants to have the atomic bomb. But the majority of Iranians hate this process, but they have been taken hostage. I don't know. Attacking them for sure is going to kill many, many innocent. But sanctions is good even if that brings Iran to poverty because that put pressure on people and people uprise against the regime. And that's the only hope that people see that, it, that, that, that the regime is taking this country to nowhere and is going to destroy, destroy it. So people take action as they did years ago. If there was a military backup for that movement, the regime had gone at that time. We've been speaking with Daniel Akbari, and the name of his most recent book, which I highly, highly recommend that every listener picks up, is titled Honor Killing, A Professional's Guide to Sexual Relations and Gera Violence from the Islamic Sources. It is an eye-opener even for people who think they really understand the fundamental tenets of Islam and Sharia, and it's a wake-up call that everyone in the West should heed. Thanks so much for speaking yes. with us today, Daniel. Thank you. Ben, my friend uh, Paul and my co-author has set up Stop Honor Killing website. If they go, it's going to be informative for them. Thank you so much for the time and giving me the opportunity to address whatever I thought it's important for Americans to know. Thank you so much for your time. You have been so generous. I appreciate it. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarden.